Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. In this episode, I'm speaking with playwright and educator Ian Finley. Ian Finley holds an MFA in Dramatic Writing from the Tisch School at New York University. In 2012, he was named the Piedmont Laureate in the field of playwriting and screenwriting by the Arts Councils of Central North Carolina. He is the author of many plays. You'll see them listed in the show notes, including The Hour History's Cycle of Site-Specific Plays for Burning Coal and The First Night Site-Specific Plays for Seed Art Share. He is also the author of The Nature of the Nautilus, winner of the Kennedy Center's Gene Kennedy Smith Award, and And There Was War in Heaven, which was a finalist for the O'Neill National Playwrights Conference. This is a wide-ranging conversation that touches on art and education in times of crisis. Ian describes his shifting work as a theater teacher in a public high school, the essential elements for a theatrical experience, and writing audio drama, because I'm delighted to say that Ian is a member of one of our Artist Soapbox Audio Collective Writers Groups, and together with Alan Mall, the three of us are hard at work on another audio fiction series. This interview was recorded virtually on March 21st, 2020. If you have the resources to do so, I encourage you to donate both to individual artists and to artist funds at the local and national level. I will include some of those links in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Ian. Thank you so much for this conversation today. Hello. We're talking on a Saturday morning, which is usually a weekend day for both of us because you teach in public schools, but now it looks like your work rhythm has changed a little bit given (laughs) the current pandemic. Could you talk a little bit about what is happening in your world of education right now? Sure, absolutely. So we got a uh, a directive uh, quite suddenly. My, my school planned on Wednesday of uh, sort of the week where everything was going mad to close the following Monday. And by the time, and that was when we said it, that Wednesday seemed, oh, this is a sort of extreme reaction. And by the time we got to that Monday, all Wake County schools were closed. And by the time we got to the following, I think Wednesday or Thursday, all North Carolina schools were closed. And so this happened enormously quickly. And we shifted to online instruction. And the way it went out in the media was, you know, they're shifting to online instruction. Like that's just a thing that people do sometimes. And the fact of the matter is for most schools, that's not true at all. They may have digital learning plans for a day or two for a blizzard, but switching for a week or two weeks or, you know, what's going to be much longer time is not something that we do. It's something that we're most schools had to invent very much on the fly. And I've just been so impressed by teachers the the country over for just saying, you know, okay, well, we'll, we'll do that. My school is really fortunate in that we use the fancy term is a blended model. You know, we have lots of classroom instruction, but we also have a lot of online resources that we use. And so because so much of our content was already online, it made it relatively easy to make this this transition. But, you know, for, for other schools, yeah, I, I, I just, I have so much respect for them just jumping in and saying, okay, we're, we're going to do this. We're just going to get this done now. The two, two observations, 
that my students made. Uh, the one of them is, you know, this is, it, it feels like a movie, but it's, it's really a moment in history. So people will be writing about this and all that. So we can look at it through that historical lens. But also, it's also one of the very few things, I can't think of any of them, that the whole world is experiencing. It's not just, oh, well, kids in other schools also are going to lose their graduation. It's like every kid in every school in America is going to lose their graduation. And every person in the world is at least thinking about this and aware of these things. So there's a sense of commonality and maybe solidarity or the potential for solidarity that maybe helps with that. You teach theater. How is that transition going to an online model? In some ways... It's easy because there's a lot of theater. You know, we think of theater and we think of acting, right? But as you you are particularly aware, there's a lot of theater that's that's individual. You know, playwriting is a solo um, experience. We were doing a playwriting unit with my drama two students, and I said, you know, as we were revising, this was before all this happened. I said to them, you know, when you're revising, ideally you shouldn't be in a room with other students. You should be locked in a garret somewhere. You should be alone with your 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 candle and your crust of bread, hammering away on the script. And and here we are. So you know, for 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 that class, you know, this is sort of the ideal. We've, we've sort of joked about that. Now there are other classes where that work becomes harder. But there's there's so much in theater that there's always work that can be done solo. So I'm reworking my curriculum through the end of the year to focus on those solo aspects of theater, whether that is playwriting, whether that is design, or you know we're lucky because we have a very sophisticated digital media and visual arts teacher who work with me. So we get to talk about things like performance art. We get to talk about things that I wasn't learning about, uh, you know, Yoko Ono and Marina Abramovich uh, until I was in college. So, and, you know, performance art is often a solo piece. So we are going to do all those sort of things. When it comes to the more traditional acting aspects of this, I'm still tinkering with this. But the fact is we have these tools. We have Zoom, which is the platform that we're doing for our classroom meetings um, each week. We have video. We have virtual reality. You know, many of my folks are coders as well as, as theater people. And so I'm looking at, okay, well, how can we leverage those tools to create a performative space that is also a digital space? We have had to cancel, and I'm putting that in italics, we've had to, to cancel our production of Henry V that we had planned. But it's not dead and gone. Since we, we canceled it, I've been thinking about, okay, well, what are the ways we could explore Henry V? And one of the things we were going to do is we were going to go up to the incredible and amazing American Shakespeare Center up in Stanton, Virginia. And just to all listeners, if you care about the arts, throw them some money. They had to, to close down, you know, they have these tight little margins and they are, uh, they are, you know, Jeremy Feebig of Sweet Tea Shakespeare referred to them as the mother church. They are the place keeping original practices of Shakespeare alive. And it turns out if you, if you hold to Shakespeare's original practices, universal lighting, audience interaction, Shakespeare is immediately accessible. My high school students were just falling out of their chairs with laughter uh, when we saw Much Ado up there. Uh, it was just magnificent. Anyway, so we were going to go up there and see Henry IV, parts one and two with the cast of Henry V, because you know those plays lead into it. And so, of course, they had to cancel their season. And then they reached out to me and said, what would happen if we tried to stream those plays? Would you guys still be interested in seeing them? It's like, well, it turns out that we're trying to use those same sort of digital tools on our end. 
to pick things up. So I think we're going through a very interesting theatrical interregnum in yeah. that way. You know, it's it's not the Puritans closing down the, the theaters. It's this this other force. But now we have these tools to see can theater be something else. I mean, your own work with audio drama is the perfect example of this, right? What if we took a play, what if we took this wonderful classic play and we put it in between someone's ears uh, instead of on a stage? We have the tools for that now. And that makes this a scary time, absolutely, but kind of a quietly thrilling time as well. I think it makes me question what are the essential elements for a theatrical experience. Like if you really boil it down to the very, very essence, realizing that, you know, sometimes you might want a certain type of experience with three ingredients and another time you might want another experience with three different ingredients. But what do we need to make that? And what do we need to experience that at its very most basic level? I think uh, that's such a delicious question, isn't it? I think it's there's there's two ingredients, right? There's a performer and there's an audience. And if you have those things from time immemorial, you have theater, you have performance. I mean, if we think of the, the the first experience that all of we have had as children with theater, it was our parents reading to us, or our parents telling us a story. And there we're including that third ingredient that I love, which is a text, right? You know, it's if you're baking, all you need to make bread is flour and water. But you know, if you have some yeast, it's a different kind of bread. And if you have some salt, you know, it doesn't take much salt. That's there as well. So as as a writer, I think you know the text is sort of the salt there. It gives flavor to the thing. But if you're just making, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking my my sister in law is Jewish, and we're coming up to Passover. I was thinking about unleavened bread, which is yeah, you know, it's it's flour and water, and there's there doesn't even have the the ingredient of time that bread would usually have, and yet it will sustain you. And it has its own powerful sort of symbolic meanings as well. So I think if we think of bread and, you know, flour and water, if we think of the two ingredients of an audience and a performer, then as long as we've got that, and that performer can be in any shape. It can be uh, on a screen. It can be uh, with a voice. It can be an animation. I'm uh, look, thinking about like puppetry and the potential of using programming and elements in digital reality to do puppetry. Um, I'm about to be a, an enormous nerd here, but one of the, the biggest things that's causing me heartbreak is I have a group of people that I play board games with. We do this you know, two, three times a week, and they are uh, my dearest friends in the world, and we play games, I mean, very complex, serious games. And we're sort of mourning that loss, and so they're also tech, are you know computer engineers and programmers. And there's this there's this thing called tabletop simulator, and it is it is a computer and virtual reality simulator. It's, it has a physics engine that simulates just a space wherein you can program like board games and like model the cards and move them around in this digital space. And so as I was looking at that, I was thinking well, you could do this with puppetry as well. You could make performances in this digital realm, and they're going to be different. They, you will, just as you lose certain things trying to play a board game in a digital space, right? You lose certain things not having the texture, the material of, of puppetry and performance. But 
there's something else that maybe you gain there. And by the way, it's something we can continue making. That I think is, is the huge bit of right now is that art of any sort and performative art, you know, that's what I care about most is so necessary right now. I think we have to find those spaces and those tools that allow us to continue to make things. I love this idea of being willing to surrender some of the things that we really enjoy about a particular type of making work or experiencing work in order to invest time and energy in what we can make and work given these circumstances. And I think there is a time to to mourn and to grieve. And there's also a time to realize how necessary this experience is uh, for the creators and also for the audience. So what can we do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes. really, really double down on like what we can do right now. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I think, and we've talked about this a little bit before, this idea of making spaces. And that's both physical spaces and temporal spaces and time that are about making things. And if we have a little corner of our existence that is dedicated to the creation of something, and we go to that corner specifically to make, you know, I, I have downstairs right now, I'm, I'm sewing and, and that sort of stuff. So I've, I've got a space set up downstairs for that. And that's where I go there to work on that. Because I think that those little corners, those little rooms of creation that we make also become our sanctuaries. They become the place that we can go for healing as well. So you talked about this a, a little bit, but I'd like to continue down this path. How is your own writing time right now? And I guess my question really is, how are you using your writing time and your writing practice during this current quarantine? Yes. Well, and it's, against the idea of trying to set aside, I'm trying to build right now a, a sort of a regimen, right? Uh, a, a, a daily schedule, because I think that that's going to be the, the tool that is going to allow this to be, you know, two and four and eight and 12 months, you know, whatever that is, is if there is some structure for me in the week and in the day. And in doing that, you know, one of the steps in there is that creative place. You know, there is an hour, there's two hours in a day that are made for and set aside for creating. And right now, because of the chaos here, I'm just getting that schedule built out. But my hope is that starting this next week, I can have an hour each day that's like, okay, this is dedicated to working on writing itself. Um, Because the the great thing, my friend Catherine LeTrent told me this, the human brain can only focus on one thing at a time. We, you know, we talk about, a lot about multitasking, but we're never actually multitasking. We're just switching between single tasks at any, any time. So that means if you are focused on something positive and creative like writing, you cannot simultaneously be focused on something negative and destructive like our government. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the human brain only has space for one idea at a time. And so if you're curating, you can't choose what ideas come to the door, but you can choose which ideas you let in and you give coffee to and you have sit down at your kitchen table. And so if you've, you've got a kitchen table full of these creative, positive ideas, there's just, there's no room. So when the, the negative idea 
ideas come knocking at the door, banging at the window or drilling through the ceiling as they tend to do. There's no room at the table. I'm sorry, I've got these, these, these better ideas here. I also find that if I take some time to be in that space of creation, that I am a better host to the <laughs> negative ideas when I need to let them in and kind of deal with them. I'm just, I'm more patient. I'm more understanding, you know, all of those things. I just, I'm in a better brain space basically yes. to manage the things that at a certain point are going to bust down the door. Yes, absolutely. Well, but because we like to think of our brains and our souls and our bodies as being these three different things. And of course they're not. They are three different aspects of the same thing and they're all deeply interrelated. And so if we take care of our mind, it helps take care of our body. If we take care of our body, it helps take care of our soul. Um, and, and, and all of these things. So if we find that time to be creative, to have that little triumph of, okay, well, the world is like a badly written movie. And I'll say it's, it would actually be a well-written movie, except for our government. I don't want to be political here, but no writer would ever come up with an administration this fallible, unless unless we were writing farce, right? I mean, it just it's it, it would it would strain credulity. In in the light of that, if we can sit down and create something, well, we have our one little moment of triumph. I at least made this. I at least revised a couple of pages today, and that little that little bit of triumph, that little bit of control, helps support us from the inside, and that helps support us from the outside. Just as you know, I think the other thing. This may seem strange, but I think that the best thing that any creative person can do right now is to go for a walk, to use your physical instrument, engaging in the real non-digital world so that you have that external strength to give to your characters when you're writing, to give to your language when you're writing. Put another way, um, we're doing digital church at the Church of the Good Shepherd where I go because they're they're magnificent. They're putting out videos every day. And the uh, the guest pastor from NC State, he had this, this great line. I'm going to remember this line all my life. He said, for solace, you can turn to scripture or you can turn to God's other great book, Nature. I thought <laughs> that sums it up right there. I'm keeping that one. That's very good advice. And I love that one of your reactions to the current events is that it's it's bad writing. <laughs> yes. Who who I mean it's just I mean, and the problem is it's not even good writing for farce because in farce we push these characters to their extremes but there is a core of, of humanity in them that we you know like Ben Johnson every man's out of his humor but if we can get them back into balance all will be well again I mean this is this is like some bad restoration comedy stuff where the characters have no moral center I mean that's that's bad yes we need some revisions yes. we need some <laughs> exactly. Go back to the drawing board. Right. I would like to talk a little bit about Soapbox Audio Collective, even though we are at the very beginnings of this experience together. You are on the team, yes. the Soapbox Audio Collective team. We are writing an audio fiction series, and we're still in kind of the beginning phase, uh, the drafting. And what are your thoughts about writing collaboratively and the turn to audio and that sort of thing? Okay, so that, there's there's two parts of that, and they're both they're both such uh, fascinating parts. So the first is writing collaboratively. By and large, in general, I don't like writing collaboratively because I'm a control freak and all of that. But 
in this instance, I'm writing with, with you and my dear, dear friend, Alan Mall. And the three of us, I think, have, we're on the same wavelength in so many ways. It doesn't feel like what I think of when I think of collaborative writing, which is a lot of, you know, parceling outs and, and, and systems and things, which, you know, I tend to, to put into place on those instances to try to maintain my sense of control. Uh, but because I trust you and Alan so very, very much, I can say, yeah, that, that's a fabulous idea. Let's go in that direction and, and discover that that's the direction that, that we ought to have been going and to know that I will be heard by my collaborators without having to enforce that or worry about that and let fear take the wheel. In general, I would say writing collaboratively is very difficult. In this particular instance, I would say writing collaboratively is a delight. So mm-hmm. it's it makes it hard to be consistent there. But I think particularly the piece that we're creating, which has to do with longing, which has to do with isolation in a, in a comic and lighthearted way, because those are the sort of writers we are, is a great thing for right now. And therefore, is particularly, I think, fitting to work with right now and also to work with, with other people, right? If you're writing about longing and isolation in isolation, it's going to, again, going back to cooking, right? The, the souffle won't rise. It will, it will have just too much weight and it'll collapse. There has to be that exchange of ideas, that lively play, I think. It certainly will make it easier to keep it lifted up. Um, and then writing for audio drama, and again, I'm just dipping my toe into this, has been something I've wanted to do since I was a teenager. We all have those bizarre little things, little nothing of an experience that for some reason sticks with us for years. When I was, I think I was 13 or 14, I don't think I was even 15 yet, there was a early days of the internet, and I saw that, it would, that someone had put out a call for writers to work on this science fiction radio drama is what they, they call it at that point in time. They were going to release over the internet. Um, and they had put out with that, the call for writers, sort of the, uh, the sketch for what the show Bible would have been. You know, here are the characters, the worlds they're from, here are the various secrets they'll be exploring. And seeing that, my mind latched onto it. And for, for weeks thereafter, I was spinning out, oh, this could be this, and this they could reveal this, and he could actually be from this planet. And, this, and you know, as, as a, a geeky teenager, not even quite teenager, tends to do with these things. Um, and from that moment, I was really enamored with this idea of writing for audio and never got a, a chance to do it. And so the opportunity to step in and play with you guys on this really is something I've wanted to do for a long time. And it also feeds into my love of structure in that it gives you a very specific box. Usually when you write a play, you have what the audience sees and what the audience hears. Now you have an even tighter box. You have what the audience hears. But within that, it's like a monochrome painting, right? Monochrome painting is not black and white. There are an infinite number of grays that experience there. So it's only what they hear. But within that very small box, there's an infinite number of possibilities. Uh, And that's just thrilling to me. Yes, a thousand times yes. What I like so much about it is that we may approach this as gradations of color, right, of of monochrome painting, but 
we rely on the audience to then fill in the, mm, yeah, the yeah. rest, you know? So there is a, it's a different relationship to the audience and we leverage their imagination in a completely different way because almost without exception, when I've done work with people around writing for audio and I ask them to think of a soundscape and, you know, write down what they are hearing, they always add the visuals as part of that experience in their <laughs> minds. Most of us are just very visual people and we can't help ourselves, but create a, the dream of what this would look like. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a very interesting approach to making work, I think, I hope. I love how you express that. That leans so much into my aesthetic for performance as well. I love sort of Brechtian bare stages. I love Shakespearean bare stages in that it forces the audience to be complicit. They have to imagine. They have to lean forward. They are not allowed to lean back. And that's always been my whole aesthetic for performance. And audio drama and audio comedy, let's be honest, really takes that to a whole new level where imagination is the bare stage. And also, it's so interesting to me that that specific sounds are as specific as a visual, right? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of if, if you hear the sound of footsteps on polished marble, right? You see the marble. You just you, you it's it's such a distinct sound the way that that would sort of echo in space. And you have to be very careful to create that audio effect. But if you have a, a great audio engineer, that's what they do, right? They paint with sound. And it is as specific. Um, and you can have, uh, we talked about this with our piece, you know, our, the piece we're writing, it requires some very fantastical sets. And we could never afford to make them on stage, but I think we can afford to make them in someone's head. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a budget line I feel comfortable yes, with. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to talk about before we wrap up? Just the, the one thing, um, and people have said this over and over again, but I, I was talking with my colleagues uh, as teachers yesterday. I'm a very, I have very high standards for myself. I have very high standards for the work that I do and for everything that I do. I'm, I'm a perfectionist and I, I, I take a certain degree of strength from that. But now is not the time to think of high standards as as an end, right? It's, st it's still part of who you are. High standards are good. But I do think this is a little bit about a time of survival. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a way of focusing on our existence from day to day and to focus on others' existence. You know, we're so isolated I think now would be a good time to anyone hearing this to, yes, you know, as we've, we've talked about so much, to revise, to to go back to their writing, to tinker with scripts and all that, but to think about the revisions in the rest of their life, you know, with their, their relationships and all that, how that can be more healthful in and out. I read uh, this this little article, they were talking to Margaret Mead, and a student had asked her, you know, what, when you look anthropologically, what do you think is the first sign of civilization? And was sort of expecting it to be, you know, bone hooks or, or cooking fires. And she said, archaeologically, the first sign of civilization was someone's femur that had been broken and healed. And she said, that's something you don't see in the animal kingdom right? If in the animal kingdom, if someone's bone breaks, that's a death sentence. They can't run, they can't escape prey. A broken bone is a death sentence. 
when we see anthropologically someone's bone healed, that meant that someone else, another person took them and took care of them and sat with them and protected them for long enough for the bone itself to heal. And that that is the first sign of civilization is not what we create ourselves, but what we do for others. Well, that is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. And I love talking with you all the time. And I'm so glad that we can work together. But today, especially, it's been wonderful to speak with you. So thank you so much. Absolutely. It is a treat. And I look forward to get away banging on those pages for that audio drama. Thanks for listening. For more information, please see our website, www.artistsoapbox.org. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.